Last year, the Washington Redskins and the Cleveland Indians announced their intentions to change their names. While many applauded these efforts, some wondered, what's the point? Some just consider it to be an example of politically correct wokeness. Hi, I'm Milton Allen Turner, and today I'll be discussing why names do matter and why actually seeing people and accepting their true identities is not only just and human, but it's a moral imperative. Welcome to this week's episode of Worldviews. For years, people have claimed that the Indians logo Chief Wahoo was not offensive and that in fact, the name Indians was intended as a tribute to Louis Sakalexis, a Penobscot Native American from Maine who played professional baseball in Cleveland for three years. But on May 17, 1999, the Cleveland Plain Dealer published an article by Bob Dolgan entitled, quote, Tale of the Indian's Name Off Base, Legend of Louis Sakalexis as Origin of Nickname Strikes Out with Baseball Historians, unquote. This article debunks the myths that the name of the team was a result of a fan contest and that the name was intended to actually honor Sakalexis. Dolgan's article reveals that a check of four Cleveland newspapers from January 1st through April 30th, 1915, does not support this theory and suggests that the decision was instead made by a group of sports writers. Dolgan's article contained an impressive list of names considered at the time. In early January 1915, the Cleveland Press listed the Tip Tops, Originals, Scraps, Panthers, Leaders, Vikings, Buckeyes, Settlers, Colts, Turners, Foresters, and Greys as suggestions. The Cleveland Leader said the name Greys was the favorite, but it also mentioned names such as the Barons, Miners, Bears, and Kids. The Cleveland News said hundreds of fans sent unsolicited letters suggesting nicknames, with the Greys and the Hustlers listed most often. On Sunday, January 17, 1915, the front pages of two Cleveland newspapers announced that the new name for the Cleveland baseball team, formerly known as the Naps, would be the Indians. The editorial cartoon from the Plain Dealer's front page suggests that it was the fortunes of the 1914 marvelous Boston Braves who went from an abysmal 69-82 record and 31 and a half games behind during the 1913 season to winning the 1914 World Series after a 94-59 regular season campaign that were at the forefront of the local sports writers' minds not Louis Succalexis. And the depictions of an Indian on a front page cartoon, including an umpire responding to his waka wogo with, when you talk to me, talk English, you wokwoig, seems far from flattering. The front page article in the Cleveland Leader on the same day begins, in place of the naps, We'll have the Indians on the warpath all the time, eager for scalps to dangle at their belts. There's no mention of Sokolexis made in this article. 
as a longtime fan of the Cleveland team, I was originally torn between my loyalty to the team and my disgust towards its logo. But I eventually realized that speaking out against the team logo and nickname does not equate to disloyalty for the team. Professional sports teams have changed logos, nicknames, and even cities more times than I care to count, and they continue to thrive. There is no logical reason to stick with, quote, tradition, unquote, for its own sake. Since Native Americans find the use of this nickname and its symbol offensive, they must be changed. The fact that Redskins is deemed relatively more offensive than Braves or Indians has been a cop-out. Boy may be a relatively less offensive term than nigger or coon, but its meaning and associations are nonetheless pejorative. Fortunately, finally, the Washington football team announced that they were immediately retiring the Redskins' name and logo in July 2020. The Cleveland baseball team is unfortunately proceeding more slowly, announcing in July 2020 that they would review a name change and announcing in December 2020 that they would begin the process of a name change. But the team still uses the name Indians and so far has not committed to a firm date for change. Some still argued, why does it all matter? Or suck it up? Or why so sensitive? And simply dismiss the issue as a matter of semantics or politically correct wokeness gone wild. Well, as a student of linguistics, I not only reject this argument, I have to correct them and state that it's actually not a matter of semantics, but rather a matter of pragmatics. Semantics is the study of meaning. However, the issue here isn't the meaning of words, it's the context in which the names are being used. It's the relationship, and especially the power relationship, between the namers and those being named. This falls under the study of language and context, known as pragmatics. In pragmatics, we define three types of speech acts. The first are called locutionary acts. These are run-of-the-mill statements or reports and represent most of the things we say, like, it's raining, or she's hungry. The second type of speech acts are called illocutionary acts. These are acts that just by saying them, you've actually done something, like, I promise, or I swear, or like in the marriage ceremony when you say, I do, you actually did. These are often referred to as performatives. These performatives are often used with the expression hereby to distinguish them from locutionary acts or ordinary utterances. So you can say, I hereby promise or I hereby declare, but you can't say, I hereby sleep or I hereby eat. The key to illocutionary acts or performatives 
is that they are speaker and situation dependent. There are special circumstances that must be true in order for the utterance to be a performative or an elocutionary act, as opposed to just a plain old speech act or locutionary act. For example, elocutionary acts have to be in the present tense and in the first person. For example, I promise or I swear are elocutionary, but I promised or he swears are just reports, not actions in and of themselves. The person saying the performers also have to have the authority to perform the act at that moment. A judge can say, I hereby sentence you to 30 days in jail, but an ordinary citizen cannot. The third type, and the type most relevant to our discussion today, are known as perlocutionary acts. Perlocutionary acts are expressions which have an effect on the listener. For example, I can't say, I hereby amuse you, or I hereby intimidate you, or I hereby insult you. In order for an act to be perlocutionary, the listener must allow it to happen. Perlocutionary acts are entirely listener-dependent. You can only amuse someone if they allow themselves to be amused. If the listener is insulted, it's an insult. A comedian may try to be funny, but if the audience doesn't laugh, he isn't funny. As opposed to illocutionary acts, in perlocutionary acts, intent is entirely irrelevant. In fact, depending on the listener, a joke can become an insult, or an insult can become a joke. In the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Arthur and his knights encounter a French knight who attempts to insult them. His taunts, such as, I blow my nose at you, and I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries all end up having a comic effect on Arthur and his group rather than the intended insulting effect. Sikuhona is a Zulu greeting, meaning, I am here to be seen. The appropriate response is, Sawubona, meaning, I see you, or we see you. The first is the announcement of a desire to be fully present, to show up as one's true self. The response is an acknowledgement, not just of your presence, but of your worth. It's saying, we see you, we value you, we honor you. Refusing to call people by their proper or their preferred names refuses to see them. It renders them invisible or powerless. I've often heard people refer to sikuhona and sawubona as, quote, African phrases. But Africa is a huge and diverse continent with a myriad of language and cultures. By not being precise and specifying that these greetings are Zulu, one is essentially not seeing them. They're in fact saying that they are irrelevant, 
We don't care enough to know or to say from which language or culture this expression originated because all of those cultures are primitive and insignificant anyway. What's in a name? Everything. Our identities are nuanced and complex. They contain many aspects, inherited and chosen. It's popular in some circles to champion the idea of colorblindness and to claim that color doesn't matter. But the failure to see color or nationality or gender or religion or any affiliation is a failure to see the whole person. This is particularly problematic when people have stepped up and invited you to see them in their full authentic selves. When people present themselves to be seen, we must see them as they are, not as we want them to be. For example, it's very common for those in the majority to try to be familiar and chummy when they meet someone. But when a black person introduces himself as Robert, he expects to be called Robert. However, white or majority Americans have the tendency to automatically take the liberty to change that person's name and use a a diminutive like Rob or Bob or Bobby. Perhaps they have good intentions and perhaps they're attempting to be friendly, but this over-familiarity is offensive to us. Remember, insults are perlocutionary Intentions aren't important. It's the effect on the listener that matters. And we're thinking, you don't know me like that, or you don't know me that well, or what's the matter with you? Are you deaf? I said Robert, not Bobby. Refusing to use his given or preferred name is the equivalent of refusing to see his presence. It's an overt act of denial, minimalization, and suppression. It's an overt act of power over another. Tanahisi Coates spoke at Evanston Township High School during his 2017 book tour. Now, I'm not sure if he ever studied linguistics, but his explanation of the importance of words and context is linguistically sound. He entertainingly and convincingly explains why certain words like the N-word or the B-word take on entirely different meanings when said by whites or men than when they're said by blacks or women. Context is everything. And as pragmatics teaches us, who says these words is critical and can never be ignored or forgotten. I heavily recommend viewing Why Every Word Doesn't Belong to Everyone on YouTube to hear his comments. What's in a name? Everything. And refusing to acknowledge one's identity, especially when one has been specifically invited to see someone in all their glory, is beyond insulting. It's dehumanizing. It's immoral. It's genocide. Now, I do admit, we all have our blind spots. For example, when I first moved to D.C. for my freshman year at Georgetown, 
I found fault in the use of the name Redskins, and I was very vocal about my opposition to the name and the logo. And as I ranted about the racist nature of the Washington team, someone pointed out to me that I was literally wearing an Indian's cap with Chief Wahoo on it and an Atlanta Braves t-shirt. Growing up in Cleveland and spending summers in Atlanta, I was oblivious to the use of Indians and Braves. But once we're made aware, once we are made to see, once we hear that invitation, I am here to be seen. We can no longer remain blind. We must admit our faults and step up ourselves. We must accept the call to see. But seeing is only the beginning. Once we acknowledge each other's true identities, then we can proceed into a conversation, a dialogue. We must then work to the point where we can tell each other, I am here to be heard, and subsequently reply, I hear you. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and that you found something in it to spark a deeper conversation leading to greater understanding. I'm Milton Allen Turner, and I invite you to join me again next week for more Worldviews.